think that's where my heart has been looking at our definition of poverty. Should it only be physical or should it be physical and spiritual? Is it possible to be physically poor and spiritually rich? And is it possible to be spiritually poor and physically rich? Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. Thanks so much for being a part of our deconstruction conversations as we attempt to build bridges and not barriers. Before we get started, just a quick note that we are on Patreon, which is an online platform that allows you access to things like extra episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and more while helping the show continue. There are different tiers of access for monthly support, so visit patreon.com slash dismantlepod. Our guest today is Brad Corrigan. Brad is the founder and president of Love, Light, and Melody, a nonprofit organization dedicated to battling physical, emotional, and spiritual effects of extreme poverty. He is a member of the indie band Dispatch, having played sold-out shows across the U.S., including Madison Square Garden, Red Rocks, Radio City Music Hall, and Red Bull Arena. And if that wasn't enough, he loves to surf as well. Brad, welcome to the show. Hey, Joey. Thanks so much. Thanks for saying yes, man. I'm glad we got to connect. Likewise, man. I've been looking forward to this. Before we dive into it, Brad, how did you get introduced to church and faith? Uh, my background is just my the way my parents raised me. Uh, my sister, she and I um, really had a deep and still have a very deep respect for my parents. And I think they raised us in such an authentic way that... What they believed in was really curious uh, to us, and you know, slowly but surely, we figured out what was religion versus what we really believed was our own personal take on things. And you know, that's how both Kelly and I have shaped our our faith stories over the years. That's awesome. Now, given the fact that sometimes you're on tour and halfway around the world, would you say that there's been a journey aspect within all of this faith stuff? Oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> so much of it, you know, from being a kid to high school to college to then rejecting faith to then finding it in a very personal way and, you know, trying to figure out really what your framework is as opposed to what you're inheriting in your family of origin. And then starting to travel internationally and discovering how many um, biases exist all over the world just by virtue of the culture that you're in. And yeah, it's, it's, it's an ever um, evolving journey in faith. It's amazing. I mean, I'm still very much in it and have more questions than ever. And I think, you know, that really does underpin an active faith. It's cool, man. Thanks for sharing that. Today on the show, we're discussing a little of your work and the issue it attempts to tackle and that is poverty around the world. Jesus says in Matthew 26, 11, that the poor you will always have with you. And I think we all become aware of poverty in some way throughout our lives. But Brad, when did you first become aware that poverty was something you wanted to tackle? Well, I remember, I remember as a kid that my grandparents were, uh, were really active in, in serving here in downtown Denver, my grandfather was a part of the Denver Rescue Mission. So, you know, once or twice a year, I would, our family would go down and either cook a Thanksgiving meal or, you know, uh, make meals for the homeless. I remember just having some of the earliest questions like, well, wait a minute, 
why do they live on the street or why don't they have work or why do they need food? Because we always have it on the table when we wake up in the morning and we have it at night for dinner. And so I remember having questions really early on as a kid. And I think through my parents and grandparents, just seeing that my dad was active in a, a ministry called prison fellowship where he would go in and spend time with men who were incarcerated and, Every now and then he'd get to bring some of those guys home for a meal. And so it was good to have exposure to really different walks of life um, growing up. But it wasn't until I'd say it was probably when I was in my late 20s, I took a, um, a trip to Peru with a handful of students, college students. And we spent time with some street kids down there and I was really impacted. It was my first real international trip. So I loved, you know, kind of getting a, a new, a new perspective on the world, but I just fell in love with these handful of kids that lived in this dusty little beach village or around the village. And, um, but they, re- they took care of themselves and it just stunned me. And I realized as a musician that I couldn't speak Spanish that if I beat a drum or played a guitar and also as an athlete, if I kicked a soccer ball through a Frisbee or something, that those were such universal ways to connect. So that began my story of learning new uh, actual languages, learning Spanish and some others to be able to connect more deeply with people. But more importantly, I think that sports and any form of art, whether it's dancing or painting murals or playing music, uh, that there's such unique ways to unify us. And, you know, and then I slowly um, started looking at what is the actual definition of poverty and should it only be physical? Because being in a band and, and having access to some really cool stages and, you know, playing with some really, um, exciting folks and, you know, just getting exposed to, uh, you know, a, or the opposite of poverty look like, um, a really successful quote, successful stage or successful season of life and discovering people who weren't very happy or content. Uh, and then my, my own personal journey, uh, burning out at one point as we're having the most physical success, I felt the most spiritually poor. I think that's where my heart has been in the last 10 years or so is just looking at our definition of poverty. Should it only be physical or should it be physical and spiritual? Is it possible to be physically poor and spiritually rich? And is it possible to be spiritually poor and physically rich? Now, when you started noticing the inequality, whether that was spiritual, emotional, or physical, was this something that you felt you could immediately impact, or did you see this as a long-term process as you learned and understood more about the inequality? I think it was a process. Um, I, I don't. It was more of a journey, you know, kind of a journey of discovery, or just feeling really curious, trying to understand why. Um, deeply impoverished communities existed mostly outside our country and then being able to come home and kind of having a new um, a new set of eyes to look at our own country and see where we have pushed the poorest of the poor and 
what uh, life among, you know, along the margins looks like. And I don't know. I mean, I, it's cramming a lot into one sentence, but at the very beginning of my journey in poverty, I was just curious about it. Then kind of in the middle, I thought I'll attack it. We'll battle it. We'll conquer it. And now I'm realizing that it truly will always be among us. Now, is that, I guess, depressing? Is that depressing to know that this issue, this inequality will always be present? Or does that give you hope in some way? No, it gives me incredible hope. It does, because I no longer think eradicating poverty is um, where our focus should be. I think being present to it one person at a time and literally kind of going back to the golden rule that love the one next to you or in front of you or the neighbor beside you the way that you would want to be loved. That means take care of the one in front of you. That means take care of the one next to you. And I think poverty actually has a a spiritual design to it where we deeply need each other. And um, I used to think that the poor will always be among us literally meant just the physically poor. And now I believe personally that that's us. That's each of us. There will always be poverty in us not outside us, but in us. And those internal poverties are what drive us to reach for a relationship, whether it's for a physical meal, if there's physical poverty, or if it's spiritual or emotional, um, and you just feel empty or lost, or, uh, or you feel a, a literal depression or anxiety, that we are built for relationships. We're not built to be, um, you know, super psycho-independent. We're not built to be super crazy successful at the cost of all relationship. We are designed to need each other. So the people who I know that are have, have so much money they don't know what to do with it, I'd say um, oftentimes you can tell that there's been a cost of relationship that may not have been worth it, or there's an aspect of being um, super wealthy that uh, is a new form of poverty because a lot of people don't know who their true friends are. Do they just look like they're a stack of money? Are they being used for the wealth that they have? Or are they truly known, understood and appreciated and loved for who they are? So I don't think there will ever be a moment where there isn't an aspect of poverty in a person um, that isn't designed to bring us back to relationship. That's kind of a, a, fuzzy um there's a there's a reality still among the physical uh poverty that exists in the world that we do have to be more than just present to it's not fair to say let's walk into a trash dump community in nicaragua and and find relationship when there are literally kids who are who have distended bellies and they need food and they need clean water and they need to have access to education and they need protection. I mean, there are physical forms of poverty that do feel like uh, a battlefield. They do uh, exist and they need to be addressed very aggressively. Um, But even there, when you get beneath the surface, I think you just find how deep relationship is. um, And that if we were to just throw food and water and clothes in school at someone without being there relationally for them, that um, it's a topical fix. It's not a transformative fix. 
Brad, what are some of your favorite scriptures and passages in the Bible that help develop this theology and this mentality of speaking into poverty? Oh, man, such a treasure trove um, of like deep proverbs and kind of ancient words that just hold so much truth still today. My, my favorites, I like to kind of almost like mixing up a really uh, a good soup. There's some amazing ingredients uh, that, that keep me uh, inspired. Ephesians 3.20 is that God can do immeasurably more than all we can ask for or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. So I think that's a really great ingredient. Um, and then um, Habakkuk, or how do you say it? Habakkuk 1.5 is really interesting. It says, look at the nations and be utterly amazed, for I will do something that you wouldn't believe even if I told you. So I'll take Ephesians 3.20, God doing infinitely more than I can dream, and then Habakkuk 1.5, that just watch, I'm going to do more, I'll do more than uh, what you could possibly believe even if I told you, and keep so, uh, uh, a childlike belief that no matter how bleak things get, like God's got a, a magic that's unfolding and a love that is going to pave the way in front of me if I will just be, if I'll just persevere, just one, one footstep at a time. <clears throat> Excuse me. Isaiah 58, oh man. You could live your entire life in Isaiah 58. There is so much meat on the bone in, in that particular passage. Matthew 6, 18 through 34-ish. Uh, don't store up treasures here where moth and rust destroy, but store up treasure in heaven. And look at the birds and look at the lilies of the sea. Just being reinforced that we shouldn't be living to pad our bank accounts. We should be living for each other and that there will always be enough. Uh, Psalm 127, unless we uh, invite the Lord to do the work, we labor in vain. Um, so important to think again, like don't come up with your own solution to what's needed in an impoverished community. Ask God to reveal that through sitting at the feet of those who you're wanting to serve. Listen. Listen for what they're asking for, and then ask God for the provision and timing to to deliver that, and it will last. Um, those are some of my favorites. I mean, it, but it is a really, it's a great journey to go through the Old Testament and the New Testament and look for um, ingredients that you can add that will nourish you as you just kind of um, just stay engaged. Proverbs 22, 9. Um, blessed is the one who shares with the poor. What is it? Blessed is the one who shares with the poor or who is generous with the poor. Essentially generosity will be, will become a blessing on and on and on and on. But, um, yeah, really anyone who wants to do quote the work of serving the poor, it's not, it's not work that we should do without having these touchstones and without having God as the one who is provider and God is the one who is the redeemer. We just get to show up and be the vessel for it. So when did you decide to take what you were seeing and then turn it into a nonprofit effort, ultimately Love, Light, and Melody? Well, in <clears throat> 2006, I said yes to a trip to Nicaragua. Um, I was going through my uh, my home church. It was sending me with my bandmates Ray and Tiago who are from Puerto Rico and Brazil. They wanted an international band that 
could uh, speak across a handful of languages. So we had Portuguese, Spanish, and English <laughs> covered between the three of us. And we played a show down there, a youth rally. Um, and I also had some friends who were um, in an organization called Christian Surfers in Florida that were supporting an orphanage. So I just thought it'd be really fun to go and, and have a four-day experience in, in Nicaragua. But I did not think that it was going to become like a second home to me. So um, 2006 really changed my life. I mean, it started as just a quick concert and trip to an orphanage. And our Nicaraguan taxi driver, after three or four trips back and forth with us, we were friendly enough. Um, and he took us into the city landfill and wanted to show us where kids needed more support than even at the orphanage. So it was very jarring to me. Um, I didn't know that children and families and trash dumps could, could literally coexist together. And, um, yeah, but after several trips to Nicaragua, return trips, because of my deep, deep curiosity and heartbreak, I just discovered a, you know, a reality that's worldwide where, you know, that where there is trash, there are always people who are going through it, uh, to try to find something of value and to create subsistence. So there are 250 ish families that had built themselves into settled into the city landfill in Managua and Managua is about, you know, 1.5, 1.7 million people. So that's really similar to Denver. Uh, but here we have 250 families living in the dump, like an actual uh, landfill community. So it felt like a township. Um, and I was just so blown away to see that there's like an actual community of people that were, scavenging in the fields and, um, you know, selling off recyclables at the end of every day in order to put food on their table. And a lot of their kids were out playing in the trash fields and you'd hear stories of children that were suffering from all kinds of, um, obvious kind of various abuses. And, and then like a, one or two kids a year would end up being killed by some of the machinery in the trash dumps and, I just couldn't believe it. It was, it was too much for me. Um, but I would say it was a really sweet wrecking ball. I mean, it just, it just wrecked my paradigm and I felt like building a nonprofit there to share the photos and the stories and short videos of what these kids were facing and bringing more artists and athletes and, you know, all, just anyone who wanted to come, just bringing people into a place like this to, um, give us all a much needed perspective of gratefulness and generosity, and then hopefully aim that generosity at changing these kids' lives. That was really the, the goal of founding Love, Light, and Melody in 2007. Now, you bring different art components into your work, such as film, photography, and even music. Can you talk a little bit about the influence of your band, your solo music career, and, and what the idea of the power of art has when applying it to the issue of poverty? Well, I think um, you can quantify, you can try to quantify poverty by statistics. You can take, you know, a scientific approach, the X number of families, and here are the percentages, and here's the life expectancy, and hear all of the, you know, the various issues. And that's really important. 
and really informative. Um, but I think that uh, that can hit like a hammer. Um, and if it's not personalized uh, for a lot of individuals or churches or nonprofits or high schools or companies, anyone that really does want to help uh, and wants to serve and uplift uh, groups of people who are in need, if there's not an individual story that humanizes uh, those statistics, I think they can end up hurtful and they can be too much and not digestible. So people end up kind of walking away feeling bludgeoned by something as opposed to an invitation to a relationship. So I think that's where art comes in. And I think that, you know, a photograph of a child uh, is so much more powerful, can be so much more powerful than learning that there are 4.6 million orphans in the world or something. I'm totally making up the number, but when you have such a massive number of something, it just doesn't hit with the same impact that, you know, a portrait of one emblematic of the, the many um, can have. So Ileana is this little girl, the first girl that we met in the trash dump. And I'll never forget her smile. I'll never forget um, the light in her eyes. I'll never forget her laughter. I'll never forget um, how she knocked on the window and looked at me like I was crazy, kind of frozen with fear inside this taxi. I'll never forget her. She's like a spiritual tattoo on my life. And she is emblematic of hundreds, if not thousands of vulnerable children uh, in Nicaragua, in and among trash dumps. So I have a heart for those kids because of Ileana. So I think art is really important that we can create a connection to um, worlds that are a little bit too big and can be overwhelming um, and give people a sense like, where would I begin? What would I do? How could I make a step uh, in the direction of helping or serving? I think art, uh, whether it's a song or a photograph or a short video um, or even a poem or a mural, it also just creates kind of a bridge between us and quote them. I think art can help us become a we, and I think art helps create um, some some side doors and some unique ways for people to connect to, you know, um, to be together and to hopefully just have a, a really transformative impact on everybody's lives improving. So one thing we did in the trash dump, because we were just like, okay, we can show photographs and we can show videos and we can raise money for um, feeding centers and we can do scholarships, but how are we going to get people in here? And we just realized like, well, let's, let's have a concert. Like, let's do what we do. And, um, and by the way, it wasn't that clear. I mean, we were, I was upset that I wasn't a doctor. I was upset that I wasn't a, diplomat. I was upset that I wasn't a lawyer. I was like, I'm not a doctor. I'm not any of these things that these people need. What am I doing here as a musician? But I really did have a kind of a divine sense that God's like, you know what? As soon as you're done thinking about all the things that you're not, will you please think about who you are and who I've designed you to be and the gifts that I've given you, like what's in your hands. And when I looked at that and thought drums, guitars, soccer balls. Okay. Well, let's 
either do that in a park and invite all the kids out of their community or wait a minute. What if we do it right here? This is where these kids have a sense of place. So let's build a stage and let's, let's make noise here and let's be right smack in the heart of it. And that truthfully was so life changing to me and to any of our team members that would come down and have fun. And I'm just so grateful that, you know, God gave us a vision to not go to a safe, clean place by our definition and kind of import the kids from the trash dump, but go right into the heart of their community and, um, and be honored to be in their community and by their invitation, feel humble to build a stage and to make noise and to, you know, bring pinpricks of light into a place that otherwise was a pretty scary uh, landscape and environment. And so that, that explosion of art became something we could invite people into. And it was so fun. We had college kids from UVA and James Madison and Virginia Tech that came on a, a service trip. We had probably 50 or 60 friends from all over the, uh, the U.S. and a handful from Brazil. And we all just got together around that stage and made music together and danced together and then painted some really fun murals. And then we flew kites and played soccer and shared food. I mean, it was just a really wonderful thing to have an artistic, fun, communal event um, in order to invite people into a trash dump for for a purpose beyond uh, what we could see. Now, maybe somebody is listening and they want to begin stepping into bridging the inequality that they see in the world and where they are. What's something that the church can do to come alongside the work of Love Light Melody and, and the efforts against poverty? <clears throat> oh, man. Do, do we have um, five hours? <laughs> oh, this is one where I might not stop talking. Um, wow. Well, for starters, I think the the church exists. And when I say church, I just mean the body of those who are actively following Jesus and following his life and his footsteps and following his teachings. We are designed for, the journey is designed for serving the poor, remembering the poor, focusing on those who are in the margins, focusing on the outcast, focusing on the alien quotes, the immigrant, the sick. I mean, Jesus's life. If you follow Jesus, you don't, you don't every now and then encounter someone who's in need. You actually live among those who are in need and you live for those who are in need. And then you discover deep down how much you need them and how much we need each other and how th this design of moving through um, communities and cultures and um, groups of people who are sick or that you don't know a lot about, that that discomfort is designed for us to find how one we are and how much of a family we are and how much we need each other across different skin colors, across language barriers, across all forms um, that can be divisive. Poverty and sickness and being outcasts. Jesus literally went there 
to find the connective tissue to unite all of us and remind us that we were designed to be one family and that he will be the one that uh, wraps his arms back around us and brings us together as one family. So the idea of, quote, church in the West or in the developing world, I'm, I'm disappointed and I'm honestly confused that for the most part, to me, it, it just looks like um, Sunday uh, high school or college class. It looks like what can we learn this weekend? And it's relegated to, usually it's relegated to once a week. It just seems like something that you show up to has a physical location. You give your money to it. It has a mortgage uh, and it's self-serving and you leave feeling like you've learned something. And I just don't believe that that is the design or the calling for what the church is to be. Um, I think the healthiest churches are the ones who are the most active and engaged in their community with the golden rule of caring for and loving the one next to neighboring or in front of you. So um, I think what any church should do is um, self-reflect, audit, um, lift up the hood, take a look at the gathering of folks who are coming together, look at where your resources are going and ask yourselves and ask Jesus, is this what you have for us? Is this what you have called us to do? And give yourselves a lot of grace and, and may there be a lot of laughter and never judgment because whenever I do self, whenever I reflect, I realize just how much more there is in following Jesus and just how much more there is for me in the area of laying my life down in order to serve the people around me. So I just don't, I don't like the direction that we're um, sort of, we're focusing so much on what we believe and we're focusing so much on being smarter uh, with theology and then it turns into doctrine and then doctrine is about rightness and wrongness. And before you know it, we're stuck um, arguing over intellectual points that we will, there will never be a right or a wrong answer to instead of walking after following Jesus and seeing where he is. And he's always engaged with someone who's in need. So, yeah, I mean, it, whether it's in your own backyard or it's overseas, I just think it's really, I don't think a church can exist without a mission a personal mission to be connected to those who are in need and that the vast majority of their resources has to reflect that. It can't reflect it. Oh my gosh, we're finally a big enough church and we've fundraised for three years and we finally have enough money to buy a building. And I think that is just, um, it makes me sad. I, I don't think that that is at all what Jesus had in mind about the establishment of the church. Well, that's awesome, man. Where can uh, where can people follow up with you and connect with the nonprofit, but also your music? Oh, man. Thanks for having me on. Um, lovelightmelody.org is our website. Uh, Love Light Melody is our Instagram. And we would love for you to, uh, to, to just become a part of our um, part of our community. I mean, we're in the process of finishing a five-year project, uh, a documentary, Ileana's Smile, that was started in 2014. 
Uh, it will come out January, February, March, somewhere in there, 2020, depending on where we release it and premiere the film. And then we're building a school in this trash dump community where so many of these uh, stories take place in Managua, Nicaragua, and it's called Ileana School of Hope. And we're actively fundraising for it every day. And uh, there will also be a book uh, about the love, light, and melody journey, lessons learned from trash to treasure. And that will come out uh, next year as well. And then I'm most excited about just getting to invite so many uh, musician friends of mine over the last few years to create original music inspired by Ileana's story. And there's really an amazing community of artists that have come together to just weave their gifts together, what they have in their hands uh, for the sake of benefiting Ileana's story and Ileana's school. So sign up on our webpage uh, to be a part of our email database and who knows, maybe even a few of you can come down in the future and, and celebrate and become part of the work that we're doing down there. Well, we'll list all that in the show notes. But again, Brad, thank you so much for the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. You got it, Joey. Thanks so much for having me. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, we're on there as Dismantle Pod. You can also support the work of the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash dismantlepod. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com.